continued to, uh, in effect, allow states to attract industry even when it degraded water quality. The change, the dramatic change, and this is where we'll focus our attention now, was in 1972. The environmental movement in the early 70s. The creation of the EPA. And the enthusiasm on the part of the public and Congress to do something meaningful. And in some respects, they overdid it. So, the Clean Water Act of 72, and this is what we're operating under now. We've had a, we've had a, f a few amendments since then, but this is really the governing action. And this, in many ways, sets us apart from the rest of the world in terms of water quality protection. Now, we can argue about Kyoto and greenhouse gases, but in terms of water quality management, uh, I don't think I think we're second to none. The goal was to restore the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. And this is this next bullet or thing is interesting. Eliminate all pollutant discharges into the nation's waterways by 1985. Yeah, it's not quite 1985. Yeah. I mean, that that was remarkable. I was in grad school in the 70s. And I looked at that when this was passed, and I thought, am I you know, dealing with water quality? I thought to myself, am I going to have a job when I get out? <laughs> it's, it's interesting to realize where on earth, how on earth did they think they were going to come up with that? And what was going on in the early 70s was a lot of research on wastewater irrigation for what used to be called sewage farms. And the feeling was that you could take the wastewater from all municipalities and all dischargers and partially treat it maybe in lagoons and then take that water out of the lagoons and, and spray it on agricultural fields and so there would be no discharge. And the concept was an interesting one. I got, I got really interested in that. Actually, I did some work on it when I was in graduate school. But the reality was the municipalities, the huge municipalities that needed to be serviced by this, just there was no land available to the degree to provide this service, nor was it land that was amenable to agricultural production of non-human consumption food crops. But that didn't prevent the people who were enthusiastic about this, and I think particularly the Corps of Engineers, from making this, making this argument. So what, what they basically did was set a schedule that um, would require, depending on the type of discharge you were, public, industrial, 
This is the schedule you had to follow from 72 to 85 in order to get to zero discharge. What was interesting about this, too, is that if you look at actually what happened, the private sector did a much better job in terms of, of following their schedule than did the public sector. That is the, you know, our municipal wastewater treatment plants. But I still run into people at the EPA um, because basically the way they, they handled this was what was through what's called the NPDES system, the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, which was a statement um, issued for all treatment plants, administered mostly by the states, but the states that refused, it was administered by EPA, that stipulated what you were allowed to discharge, well, the volume and the concentration of the key contaminants. So it was a permit to pollute. But the key word, as a few people in EPA remind me every so often, it's National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. Elimination. That is, this is a system that is working towards eliminating discharges. So uh, there's still this perspective in, within EPA and so uh, one thing I have to say about that is it's the Bush administration, which is not necessarily a friend of the environment, but there are a whole bunch of folks in EPA who are very committed to environmental protection, as well as the environmental community. Now the second one, a bit more realistic, provide for the protection and propagation of fish, shellfish, and wildlife, and provide for recreation in and on the water by 1983. Even that one we have not fully achieved but a bit, a bit more realistic than the elimination. Of, but what we did accomplish through, through this is a remarkable improvement in water quality. Because what we, you know, the economists were horrified because there was no cost-benefit analysis on this. But if you were this type of discharger, this is what you had to do on this calendar schedule, period. Whether it was needed for protection of water quality or not, this is what you had to do. And the states and EPA enforced that. And the impact was absolutely remarkable from 72 up to the present. It really made a huge difference. So this is a remarkable success story in terms of, of, uh, of, of regulation when you, you, you have difficulty figuring out what should, you know, what should a, uh, and I'll, I'll get to this in a moment, what should a discharger do in order to achieve compliance with the water quality standard in a cost-benefit manner? Um, he didn't care. The, 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 the notion was if you were this type of discharger, this is what you had to do. And whether the costs and benefits were justified didn't matter. Okay, so re amazing success story. And it's really led to what, where we are now, which is... Which is in mode, for the most part, great water quality. Now, but that doesn't mean we, we're, not, we're not without problems. And this is the area I'm working in, and this is what I'm basically going to con conclude with, is this case study. Um, another provision of the Clean Water Act in 1972 was the requirement that the state set water quality standards for all water bodies. And I'll get into that in a moment. And for those water bodies that did not achieve the water quality standards, they were designated as impaired. 
And recently, it was determined that roughly 20,000 water bodies across the United States are not meeting the Clean Water Act goals that, set, that is the standards assessed by the state. Probably around seven, 800 segments of water bodies in North Carolina alone are, are in this. And this is, this is I, I chaired a National Academy of Sciences panel looking at this program, and this is what much of my research deals with right now. So what this means is that, and I'll define this term shortly, is that approximately 36,000 pollutant control measures, or what we call TMDLs, are needed in the next 8 to 13 years to achieve compliance with these water quality standards. Now what do I mean by a TMDL? Achieving compliance with water quality standards using TMDLs. So this basically this is after we've we've gotten the, the wastewater treatment plants really almost to the limit of the technology. We're still violating water quality standards. A lot of that's due to what we would say is non-point sources, agriculture and stormwater runoff and so on. TMDL is, is, refers to a total maximum daily load. And this is, this is an interesting thing because for years, daily didn't mean anything. It was really a total maximum annual pollutant input. But a court cases in the past few months, and I was just talking to uh, a friend in e the EPA Office of Water today, and they're having an awful time because the courts are insisting that they convert the annual pollutant loads into daily pollutant loads, and that's a horrendous task that is, that is just really burdening EPA and the states to try to do that. So, for water bodies that do not meet water quality standards, states may be required to develop a management plan and determine the allowable pollutant loading, what's called the TMDL, necessary to achieve compliance with the water quality standard. That is, where, you know, what reductions in discharge of contaminants that are leading to violations in water quality standards are necessary in order to achieve compliance. And for, for my research group, that often involves what we call water quality modeling, doing computations, computer analyses, and so on. So where, where does this all come from? Um, what we have are the water quality, this is the framework for restoring impaired waters as stipulated in the Clean Water Act of 72, and was largely ignored because they focused on wastewater treatment plants until the early 90s. We have water quality standards, and those consist of three things. A designated use, which might be body contact recreation, boating, um, fishing, uh, shelf, commercial shell fishing, and so on. It's usually a narrative statement that's a sentence or two. We have water quality criteria, which the states go out and measure, something that they can measure relatively easily, that is supposedly a surrogate to indicate whether or not they've achieved compliance with the designated use. And this is an issue that, again, my research group is working on. And then they have an anti-degradation clause, which says you can't, you can't work up a plan that makes the water quality worse. You can't allow degradation. So through monitoring, water quality monitoring and assessment, you have what's called Section 303D is just a section of the Water Quality Act. You list the impaired waters in your state, and it's anywhere from, say, like seven or 800 in North Carolina to 2,000 in Mississippi. 
And, and if it's impaired, then you have to determine, you have to assess a TMDL, that's the maximum pollutant load, and allocate the pollutant load reductions between PS, which is point sources, wastewater treatment plants, and stormwater runoff, and non-point source, like agricultural runoff, and still uh, confined animal feedlot operations, like uh, uh, hog farms. And so you, you do that analysis, you send it to EPA, you send it through the state, it gets in North Carolina, it gets evaluated at the Environmental Management Commission. If approved, it then is sent to EPA Region 4 in Atlanta. If they approve it, then it's implemented by the state and local governments. And they're rapidly working through this, and, and our research group is helping them on a couple of them. And we worked on one in particular that I'm going to show you right now. Okay. This is one that we were we successfully did. Uh, you pro many of you may remember all the problems in the News River, and our group was involved in doing the analysis that led to the TMDL and the, and the successful compliance with the water quality standard. Now, what does eutrophication mean? Well, there's the noose. You can see it right there. And the drainage basin includes Raleigh and part of Durham. I guess it probably includes this part of Durham. That's Algal bloom. Algal blooms and fish kills. You can see the water is not blue. It's green. Undesirable. It exceeds the water quality standard for algal density. And the culprit pollutant was nitrogen. So what our group and others had to do was figure out how much nitrogen input to the noose has to be reduced in order to achieve compliance with the water quality criterion for algal density measured as chlorophyll A. So this work occurred in the, oh, between like 96 and, and 01. But let me put a little more background on this. And those of you who've been around for a while probably remember this. Those of you who haven't, uh, um, it's an interesting, it's a fascinating story in many ways. What was going, this is the news estuary from New Bern up to Pamlico Sound. And uh, what this is indicating here, these little symbols of the not so good looking fish are indicative of the fish kills. So not only did we have what we would call algal blooms and excessive algae, but we had, you probably remember, massive fish kills. And uh, the news is an observer. Uh, what years? What? What years? I Yeah, 1996. Well, you can see right here. 1996, 96, yeah. That's, that's when it really blew up in the public eye. And the News and Observer had these headlines. Massive fish kill hits news. Um, news plan, and this was a plan that the state, the state was very proactive in it. So proactive, in fact, that we really didn't need our study at all, as it turned out. Farmers fight news plan. It was, it was, uh, you know, a lot of it was associated with a farming community, which is extremely powerful in North Carolina. Interestingly, probably the biggest culprit in this was the Raleigh wastewater treatment plant. And once they, and, and they, uh, the state forced them and other wastewater treatment plants in the News River to take drastic action before we had a chance to really get in and do the analysis. And they did a remarkable job. I can't say so much about the farmers, 
But you can see this is all 1996. And the other interesting thing about this, 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 this too was kind of fascinating. I don't know if you guys remember, you were around when this happened. Uh, the Fisteria Hysteria. And actually, it's, it's, it, hasn't, it hasn't breathed its last, last breath. Um, Joanne Burkhalter, who's someone I've known for 20 years, a scientist at, at NC State, claimed that there was this organism, Fisteria, uh, kind of algal-type uh, organism that had 23 life stages. And it would, it would uh, reside um, in the sediments, kind of dormant. And then if a, if a, a large number of fish uh, swam over, and they were generally menhaden, oily fish, and, and released an excreta or secreta, probably the oil associated with the fish, the fisteria would change to a different life stage and come up out of the sediments and narcotize the fish. And then they would change to yet another life stage, and they would consume the fish tissue, leading to fish gills of hundreds, thousands, if not millions. Just after I became uh, director of the Water Research Institute, Rodney Barker, the author of this, came over and interviewed me for an hour about this issue as he was writing, writing this book. And I said, look, you know, the way science proceeds is that you have an accepted perspective on how, how, how what, what's going on in the scientific arena, uh, an accepted hypothesis. And that is, for the most part, that fish kills occur, in some cases toxic substances, but for the most part due to lack of oxygen. And, and that's got to be the prevailing perspective here. Now, Joanne has an alternative point of view. But... She has the burden, maybe with her colleagues, to prove that Fisteria is the culprit here. Um, that discussion got left on the cutting room floor, much to my relief. Um, and uh, Joanne, though, persisted in, in not sharing her Fisteria cultures with anyone because she thought they were so dangerous. And no one else could prove what she was saying. In the meantime, article after article was coming out saying that there were other toxic organisms in the water and that Fisteria doesn't have these 23 life stages. These are different organisms. And a couple of colleagues of mine at Duke did a rather convincing probabilistic analysis that showed that the evidence indicated that it was more likely that the Fisteria were an opportunistic organism that dissolved oxygen and lack of oxygen, in fact, killed the fish. And the Fisteria came in after the fact, along with other organisms, and consumed the tissue. Now, there's new work that has just recently come out in the last month that is is partially beginning to uh, support Joanne's work, but but at the same time, this was a you know th this this really set us back quite a bit because Governor Hunt, the Health Department, um, DEN, the Department of Environment and Natural Resources, 
were just completely intimidated in this situation. Uh, my colleague, the director of what was called Sea Grant, which is similar to Water Research Institute, was fired because of, of supposed uh, lack of fairness to Joanne. I talked to people in national research organizations who said they were completely intimidated by her and they would, they would fund her research regardless of what they thought about it. And that's not the way science should, should run. Um, and, of course, Rodney Barker said this is the next Ebola in, in, in his book. Uh, so this, you know, in some ways it was an interesting time, but it was, a, it was clearly a distraction from, from what we were doing. And then up until recently, Joanne has pretty much dropped all of the hysteria concern. And, and, and still the, the general perspective, perspective in, the, in, the, in the news is that it's, and, and in other uh, coastal estuarine environments, is it's low oxygen and it's not, it's not hysteria. I don't, I don't think the last word has been written about hysteria, but um, I think it's more, it's really more this, or actually that's the wrong one. It's really more this. Why didn't that go there anyway? Oh, I, that's right, I had two of these. It's really more this. Um, yeah, the nitrogen up here stimulates the growth of algae. The algae will, will die. Uh, and to, actually, here's Fisteria right here. And, uh, and there is resultant uh, loss of oxygen associated with the bacterial consumption of, uh, of, of, of algae leads to the, to the fish kill. Okay, so where's the nitrogen coming from? Okay, here it is. The triangle connection. A lot of it, as I mentioned, is the uh, Raleigh Wastewater Treatment Plant, Cary, certainly. Um, and even though these are, what, 150 miles away, these are, these are huge. And what was, what was so, um, I think, the state should be so proud of is that they, they went very aggressively after these treatment plants as soon as the public outcry occurred, well before the federal government stepped in. And, I, and the other thing they did is I chaired a committee associated with noose riparian buffers, which basically had a, you know, what, what do you do with the land along the stream channels? And, and we recommended 50-foot forested buffers uh, as, as required along all the, blue, the uh, USGS Blue Line streams in the noose. Of course, what we what we didn't realize is that about 95% of the blue line streams already had required buffers, so probably didn't make that much difference, but it was an important symbolic act, at least. They still were, and, and uh, as I recall, and I think that Raleigh was able to, to uh, get those. That's, that's, that's a good point. I didn't mention that. Those grants made a big difference from the mid-70s, I think, to the mid-90s. Okay, but 
the, the aside from from that, the you know the, the the culprit that we just couldn't adequately deal with was the agricultural community, both the the row crop agriculture and and the animal agriculture, both from groundwater contamination and surface water, as well as ammonia, which is a form of nitrogen that escapes to the atmosphere and then can come down. Uh, down in the watershed and, and be a problem as a nutrient. And this shows the nitrogen cycle fairly, fairly well. You've, you've got the situation where you could have nitrogen in the atmosphere coming down, you have nitrogen in the groundwater, nitrogen in runoff. Uh, so there were, a whole ver there were a number of sources of nitrogen coming from agriculture that partially were controlled by the riparian buffers, but not completely. And while, while we developed the NPDES program, we, that is the United States, for wastewater treatment plants, and more recently for urban stormwater, uh, we don't have it for agriculture. We're beginning to develop it for combined animal feedlot operations. You know, we, and and that, that I need to show you some interesting statistics on. These are the confined animal feedlot operations, all the little dots in the, in the noose estuary. There are, there are 5,000 hogs in uh, Duplin and Sampson, 5 million hogs in Duplin and Sampson County alone. And this shows the growth of, of hogs in North Carolina from 83 to 97, 10 million. That's more, more people, more than we have people. you have data later than No, I don't. I th and, I, and there's a moratorium on, on the growth of these for a while until. Uh, Mike Williams at NC State has a grant from Smithfield Foods to uh, try to work up some better uh, hog, oper hog waste operations than what we have uh, right here. So basically, it's an interesting thing. Um, hog operations are called are zero discharge operations. Hard to believe, isn't that? <laughs> There's zero discharge. So when we did our TMDL analysis, that is, what's the allowable nitrogen load uh, in in the noose? watershed to achieve compliance, we really couldn't accurately include anything from the hog operations. And the reason there's zero discharge is the hog pens release, the waste from the hog pens go into these lagoons. Right? There, there are the hog pens right there, and there's a lagoon. And the water is, obviously the, the nitrogen is broken down, the organic nitrogen is broken down into inorganic form, forms of ammonia and nitrate. And uh, scientists at NC State University have worked out a, uh, an approach whereby uh, you, depending on the nature of the soil and the crop and so forth, you can spray the liquid effluent at so-called agronomic rates on non-human consumption crops. And so that's what's going on right here. The dilemma that they run into, and obviously we saw that, for those of you who are around at least, during the hurricanes in the 90s, is what do you do when you get a huge storm? 
and, and the, when it's likely to overfill the lagoon and cause a breach in the lagoon, or you spray the field when it's saturated. And what I have observed, for the most part, is that their decision, and it's probably the better one, is they spray the field when it's saturated. Uh, and, and I think their major reason for doing that is, is that it means less adverse publicity for them. So what we're hoping is that through Mike Williams' research program at NC State, we'll have something different. Now, of course, you could, you know, we know how to treat nitrogen in a municipal wastewater treatment plant, but treating it for 10 million hogs at the cost required in a municipal wastewater treatment plant is, is something we're just not prepared to do.